man, Christmas. Here we are again, right? The time has come upon us, and uh, what we are right now, I think, at least I sense this, is we're victims, right? I mean, of all the advertising that's going on, right? I mean, TV commercials, billboards, you name it. We're getting bombarded with advertisements. Some of them are great, they make us laugh, some of them are cute, whatever. Some of, this, some of them actually influence buying, like we're going to actually go get something, wow, that, that looks great. I should get that for my wife or my kid or whatever. Some of them are really silly. And uh, one of them I find to be particularly silly is the uh, December to Remember one by Lexus. Right? Anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? You know, the December to Remember where like the real smooth cats in the cashmere in the the snow kind of walking around. They go outside and then they got that big red ribbon on the $75,000 SUV. Right? The December to remember, right? If you buy this for your friend, your spouse, your whatever, your kid who's in college, because, you know, like that's what college kids should get, right? $75,000 SUVs, right? It's silly to me as if any of us that are normal would even have the resources anywhere near that uh, to, to do something like that. I mean, who really has the money for that? I, I don't. I don't have that. Uh, And the interesting thing is, in the end, what makes it really kind of an annoying commercial is I watch it and I feel like, man, cheapers. Guess I'm not really doing anything really nice for my wife, right? You know, that sweater's not looking that sweet uh, with with the $75,000 Lexus. Well, good news, okay? That doesn't ruin Christmas. Everyone say amen to that. That does not ruin Christmas just because we can't get... The LS7200, or whatever that thing is, champagne, silver, black, whatever it is, just because we can't hook our wife up with that doesn't mean Christmas is ruined. It's actually, Christmas has, has uh, so much more to do, there's so much more about Christmas than our consumeristic uh, experience of it in America, where it's got to be kind of like we got to beat last year and get to this you know, pinnacle of giving with the December to remember. There's so much more about Christmas. And, and really, Christmas, and, and I think this is good news for people who don't have the money. Okay? And I mean that in, in the literal sense, but also the figurative sense. Christmas is not about that. And it's good news for us who don't have the money. Because Christmas, what it's all about, it, money can't buy it. Right? No, ma- no matter how much money you've got, you can't buy what Christmas really gives to this world. You can't. You can't work hard enough. You can't earn what Christmas is all about. So I think no matter where we are, whether we can put the money in the basket and, and get all the car that we want, no matter what that looks like for us, the good news is that, that Christmas has nothing to do with that, or maybe the bad news for some of us, right? We think that, man, in terms of Christmas, I can afford it, I can earn it, whatever. Friends, that's, that's not Christmas. So tonight, and I know we've heard, many of us have heard this a thousand times over, the true meaning of Christmas, the real reason for the season. And to be honest, there's something beautiful about that. With all the ads that are out there, the new hot thing, Christmas and the true meaning of it, we talk about the same thing every year because the same thing is the very thing that we need 
And the same thing is the very thing that gives us a joy that this world could never give us. So let's turn to Isaiah 9. We're leaving our Acts series. We're going to open up the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. It's uh, not a long passage, but it will probably still be a very long sermon. This is what I do, right? So we're going to take a look at seven verses here. We're going to take a look at what Christmas is all about. And interestingly enough, we are not uh, talking about, uh, we are not going to that event 2,000 years ago, but we're even going farther back in the story about some of the promises uh, concerning the true meaning of, of Christmas here. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Question. And I'm popping it on you, so it might give you a little second for it to marinate a little bit. So it's, you know, pop, pop question. Might need a minute to think about this. Or maybe not. Maybe the question drives home immediately given the season of life that you find yourself in right now. Have you ever found yourself in a season of life or a, a time of your existence where you were completely miserable? Maybe a time of despair, frustration, a particular time in your life where everything seemed to be falling apart at the seams all around you and most tragically, inside you. Have you ever been in a season of life like that? 
That's what the people of Judah right now, in this passage, are experiencing. And friends, the question and the words therein are unsatisfactory, really, to describe the anguish and the frustration and the exhaustion and the despair and despondency that these people in this time were experiencing. This was a time where 730 B.C., long ago, the place kind of north of Jerusalem known as Naphtali and Zebulun, you see those words, those are the names of two tribes and also a region where they were experiencing incredible difficulty as a nation. Now again, I ask you that question as an individual, but this is really the state of a people, a nation, and a portion of that nation that is experiencing it with with great intensity. These people had fallen underneath the oppression of a very dominant, tyrannical enemy known as Assyria. The king and the people of Assyria. Many of these people had been dragged off from their homes, uprooted, moved away, and now living under the tyranny and the oppression of a ruler that has taken away all their freedoms and is using those people for their own gain. There's no care and concern for the people. The passage calls it anguish, right? There'll be no more gloom for who who was in anguish. There's a a dimness that's communicated in that. That is, life is dim. It stinks. And it stinks because of the oppression that these people are feeling. They're miserable. They're in despair. And they can't seem to get themselves out of it. They're stuck. There's an anxiety here. There's a misery. There's a stumbling around in this dimness, this darkness. There's the idea of this tottering people kind of stumbling around, and, and there's a weakness there. These people are weak. They're overwhelmed. And you almost get the sense that in the midst of this anguish that the staggering and the tottering is eventually going to lead to The fall of these people. Life had literally given these people a beating. Now let's be clear though, because we're beginning to feel bad for these people, right? Oh man, I can identify with that, and I feel really bad for them. My heart goes out to them. Man, I would love to do something to change their situation because it's not fair. They shouldn't be going through this. But the reality is the exact opposite. If you turn back and see why these people were brought away from their homes, why they no longer lived in the land of promise, if you saw why they were going through this anguish and despair and distress, you would see it was of their own doing. You would see a king who refused to trust in their Lord and who turned to Assyria to be its protector. And its protector, who wasn't the Lord Himself, began to be its dictator. 
You would see rebellion. You would see sin. You would see that these people got exactly what they deserved. You would see that they were not just living under the oppression of an enemy, but they were living under the discipline and wrath of a righteous God. They were getting what they deserved. Much of these things are like oracles, pronouncements of judgment, doom, that would come upon these people because they refused to obey the Lord. It's like my daughter when she says, Dad, I haven't watched TV for like three days. And I'm like, well, you remember, right? The way you talked to your mom, you didn't obey. Look at your room. <laughs> you get the idea. They're, these people are in the midst of despair, and it's of their own doing. That's what sin does to us, doesn't it? We see it, and we see sin for what it is, and we think it's a way out. We think it's our salvation, and we run to it, and we refuse to trust in the Lord, but then in the end, our refusal to trust in the Lord because of fear and anxiety or maybe trust in something else becomes the very thing that causes our downfall, doesn't it? That's the nature of sin. It promises us of something that, we can't, that it can't give us. Seems like a hopeless situation doesn't it? At the end of chapter 8, they will look to the earth, but behold, the distress and the darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What judgment. But then we read verse 1 again, don't we? Look at what it says. To those people who deserve judgment, to those people who deserve discipline, to those people who are just simply getting what their deeds deserved. The prophet Isaiah says this, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. That first word, but, you got to love it, right? you got to love it. You see it time and time again in the Scriptures. You have this awful reality, and then God in His revelation to us says, but... Right? You, you, were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you used to walk. But God being rich in mercy. right? It starts with but. It's that adversative. There was this reality. We're walking in this direction. And then out of nowhere, the, the divine revealer says but. And we see a completely new situation that's, that's being accomplished. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. What hope these people have, even though they don't deserve it, right? With the Lord, there's hope. That's what Christmas is all about. Hope for a people that do not deserve it. Hope for a people in a hopeless situation where they belong. But hope for a people uh, that don't deserve it. There'll be no more gloom for who who is in anguish. Look at what God is going to do. Why would there be no more gloom? Well, first of all, we see this. We see that in the Lord there's hope of joy for a people living in gloom. Joy. Right? Something money can't buy. Right? Can can we go there for a minute? You can get a 55-inch flat screen, but you you can't buy joy. Maybe momentary happiness in the sip of a latte. Anybody say amen? But that's not eternal, right? You can't buy joy, but you can receive it. With the Lord, there's hope of joy for a people living in gloom. Look at that. 
He says, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And then he goes on to say, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they're glad when they divide the spoil. Again, these people were in despair. They were in gloom. But now God is doing something to cause them to have joy. That's what Christmas is all about. God is doing something for people who don't deserve it to give people what they really crave, what they really long for, lasting joy in Him. And I love that because... You know, God it tells us that God wants us to have joy. I don't know what your image of God is, like some tyrannical dictator that just has a bunch of rules to make us miserable and drive us nuts. Friends, that is not the living God. That is not the God of the Bible. Sure, there are codes and rules and laws that reveal His holiness and at the same time reveal our sin, but friends, let's understand this. God is a God that desires us to experience lasting eternal joy. He sees the despair that we're in. The very despair that our sin has caused. And now He's going to act in such a way to give us joy. God wants you to have joy. He doesn't want to make you miserable. Christmas is about that. He wants us to have joy. What is kind of joy that he wants us to have as joy at the harvest right the way i see that it's like satisfaction when we begin to partake of the fruit of our labors it's like when i gutted our upstairs bathroom about a month ago when i got to hang that last picture even though i cut myself in the process right i got to hang that last picture and i got to stand in the doorway and i got to say that's what I'm talking about. That's great. Look at that. Right? There's that joy that we've worked really hard. And now we're enjoying that, that satisfaction of the fruit of our labors. That's, that's what he's saying at harvest. When all the crops come in and we get to feast, that's the kind of joy that God has for us. That's the kind of joy that we find in Him. Not only that, but look at what else it says. As they're glad when they divide the spoil, right? This idea that the spoil was the thing that they got when they won. When they won the war, they got the spoil. It's like when Syracuse beats Georgetown. We're excited about that. Yay, victory, triumph over our foes. It's like when the Steelers beat the Ravens, which happens sometimes lately. You get this idea that we are victorious over our foes, and we begin to celebrate that. That's the kind of joy that God wants us to have. So however you need to see that and understand that metaphor, that's what's taking place here. Christmas is about God giving us a joy, acting in such a way to give us joy, like the joy that we have when we're satisfied when the work is done and we just rest in the fruit of our labors, and the kind of joy that we have when we, when we celebrate victory over our enemies. That's the kind of joy that God has for us. With the Lord, there's hope of joy for a people living in gloom. That's what they were living in. And now God is doing something to give them joy. But understand this. 
It is not in the victory alone, and it is not in the fruit of the labor alone that is the source of our joy. We need to be careful about that. Right? We do not, we do not celebrate the gift more than we celebrate the giver, right? So we under, look at what it says. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. The people are now rejoicing in the God that has done all this for them. Out of His power and out of His grace. And so really what we see here is a satisfaction and a celebration of God. That kind of joy. That's the kind of joy that God is giving us. A joy that is found in Him. And a satisfaction that is found in Him. And again, you see the kind of joy that God has for us the kind of lasting joy that we crave is not to be found in worldly understanding of joy that is temporal and fleeting, comes and goes. But it is something that is eternal because it's found in a God that is eternal. Amen? That's joy. With the Lord, there's hope for joy for a people living in gloom. Not only that, we see a hope for future glory, for a people standing in former contempt. Look at that. In the former time, He brought into contempt these people. Right? So, God was relating to these people because of their sin and because of their rebellion against Him in a way of contempt. But now, the way He's relating to His people is very different. There's a radical change from the way He used to relate to these people and the way that He is now relating to His people. Because of something significant that's about to happen, which we're going to talk about in just a few moments. The former time is very different than the latter time. And so I love that because no matter what we're feeling in the former time or what we're feeling in the present time, Christmas signifies that God is doing something different in the latter time. In our lives, in our world, in our community, in our families, we may feel the, the despair and the misery of the present, but know that God is powerful enough and gracious enough as we trust in His work to change the past and the present to something much more glorious in the future. Amen? That's what God does. He changes the present, a, a present that we can't change, and turns it into something much more beautiful and glorious. That's what Christmas is all about. Hope for that reality. With the Lord, there's hope of light for a people walking in darkness. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This idea of, of this nation, whether they recognize it or not, living in the dark, stumbling around. See, the thing about the darkness, and the darkness is a, is a symbol for the absence of the presence of God. So when we talk about light, we're talking about experiencing the presence of God, right? So darkness and light is yes, actually a, an image of good and evil, purity uh, uh, and, 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 and impurity, yes. But also darkness is the, is the idea that there's no God present. He's gone. We don't know where to go. We're stumbling around trying to figure out on our own. We don't have our leader leading the way. And at the same time, we see that light is the opposite. That when God is present with us, 
He's leading the way. We're not left to stumble around in the darkness in life, trying to figure out what's next, trying to figure out left or right or straight, not sure. But that the presence of God is, is something that now we see as being promised in this passage. The people living in darkness, absent of a relationship with God, absent from the presence of God, is now going to see a great light. That is, in the midst of their darkness, light will shine. And we'll see how. It's not just like, you know, the Batman light. It's not just, you know, a spotlight. We're going to be talking about here that light is a person. God is light. And in Him there's no darkness at all. And so to find light is to find Him. That's what we see implicitly happening here. That God is promising His presence. And light is coming to be attached to that. John 1, right? True light is coming into the world. The Word became flesh. Um, it's just a, a common theme in John. And we even think about Moses. When, when he is in the presence of God, what and his glory, even the connection of that, right? The, the moving from contempt to glory. The moving from darkness to light. There's a connection there between glory and light as well. To experience the glory of God is to come face to face with His light in His presence. And so when Moses, right, when the glory of the Lord passes before him and he comes down on the mountain, what do the people see? Anybody remember? What do they see emanating off of Moses? His face is shining bright. They can't even look into his face. So he's experiencing the glory of God, the presence of God. And his face is shining like the sun. Amazing. With the Lord, there's hope of light for a people walking in darkness. Not only that, look. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. What God is doing is not just bringing glory, not just shedding light in darkness, but what God is doing in here giving us hope. What is he doing? He's breaking our oppression. Look at the symbols, the yoke, this idea of something kind of going over the shoulder, maybe two ropes and two buckets. You're carrying an intense weight, and you're laboring. That's what these people were going through, working, laboring, carrying heavy loads upon their shoulders. That's broken, he says. The staff for his shoulder. The staff was, was yes, used for walking, used for shepherding, but the staff was also a symbol of, of oppression because... Those who were oppressing people would, would, would slap them on the shoulder to get back to work. See this. And also, the rod, same thing. All symbols of oppression, slavery, bondage, stuck, can't get out. Someone more powerful and evil is now uh, uh, using that power and evil to oppress me, to bring me low, to suck the very life out of me. What God is doing in this moment is bringing hope to a people living in that situation and saying, I'm going to break it. The power of all those who enslave you and oppress you. And friends, lest we forget the source of all this oppression, it's their own sin, right? And that's what we feel today. 
we feel oppression, we feel the slavery, we feel stuck in our sin. And all the other things that we get as a result are just outflow and fruit of the sin that oppresses us and keeps us there. And we can't get out. And so what God is doing in this hope-filled passage is saying, I'm breaking that. The power of sin, I'm breaking. You're no longer going to feel the weight of your sin. I'm going to break that oppression. What an amazing thing. Again, money cannot buy you that. Walmart is not trying to sell you that on their website this Christmas. No human effort can earn that reward. But you begin to see, even the next verse, peace. In the Lord there's peace for people living in in constant conflict. Every boot of the tramping warrior, every garment rolled in blood, it's all going to be burned. It's all ending. Conflict. So what we're seeing here is this God is looking at a people living in distress and despair and saying, I'm going to do something out of my power and my grace to radically transform your current experience in such a way that you're going to get what money could never buy, what you could never obtain on your own. You are going to receive me. And because you receive me, you're going to have joy, you're going to have light, you're going to have peace, and you're going to have freedom. Things that money could never buy you in this world. All that these people had been craving, in the midst of their sorrow, in the midst of their anguish, God is saying no more. Even though you deserve to be there, no more. Begin to think about that. Honestly, begin to step back for a moment from the passage and begin to think about my life and I begin to think, wow, is that not what God has done in my life? Is that not how He has treated me? Despite my failures, despite my sins, and how I'm so prone to wander and so quick to be anxious and so quick to all the sins that I have. It's just, it's there. You feel the flesh. You know its power. But at the same time, you see a God showing up and saying, I see all the things that you crave. I'm going to give you something much more beautiful and something that much more bright. It's going to be my joy, my peace, my freedom. Is that not what God has done? And is that not why we sit in this room tonight worshiping Him, right? We've seen all that God is and all that He's done in Jesus Christ, and we've said, yes, we want to respond to that. We're satisfied, and we're celebrating in Jesus for all that He's accomplished for us, and we're here to worship Him. Is that not what worship is? A response to the activity of God in our life that we don't deserve? The way he's related to us that is not the way the world relates to people. So differently. This is what God has done. And that's what Christmas is all about. It's a reminder of our hope. And the reminder of the Lord of hope. That in the midst of our gloom, God speaks words of hope. But as we shall see, again, this is not the end. Just peace, the ending of wars, just 
freedom, the, the ending of oppression, just some joy, just some light. But there's something else on which every one of these things hang upon. Right? It's like I think of my closet with all the coats. I think, man, those hangers are helpful. Right? Because if it wasn't for the hanger, everything would be on the floor. But then you realize there's about 275 hangers lined up and like this small of space. So you begin to wonder, man, I'm so grateful for the rod that holds the hangers. I don't know how it's happening. You know, like the heavy weight of all those coats. You see in this moment that there's, yes, the joy, we're hanging it there, uh, peace and, and, and freedom and light for life. But you see that there's something else on which all of those things hang, carries the weight of all of that. And we see that it is a person, right? These things are not abstract concepts. They're not theories, joy, peace, freedom, light. They're not just that. If you're looking for any of those things, you will only find them in a person because light, joy, freedom, and peace is a person on which all of those things hang. What God is doing in Christmas and in this time promising is what? He's sending Himself. There's a birth that's about to take place. Look at what it says. For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. And I know when you read that, you think to yourself, well, isn't that a little odd? All of this thing is going to come through uh, a baby. All of these things are going to be achieved through a baby. Now, if, I, I got to visit Levi, one of the pastors at Mizio, uh, and, and their baby last week. And you look at this baby and you think, they're not capable of anything. Right? So you, you see weakness. You see dependence. So when you look at babies, you don't get to, get to thinking, man, we're gonna, our foes are in big trouble because of this baby. Right? Our, man, this is turning my world upside down. Well, you better believe it's turning your world upside down. Man, this baby's going to cause a lot of good change in my life. True statement. But there's going to be some other changes going on too. But you don't think, man, we're going to conquer the world. We're going to be restored back to... Right? We don't think that with a little child. And yet, yes... The irony, the mystery, the craziness of the way by which all of these things are given to the world that craves it is through a baby, through a child. But not just any child, a son. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. All of our hope is found in this child, this son that's given. Son born with a matchless name. Look at that. Now I've got three kids. One of them's Evelyn. I have no idea why we named her Evelyn. Just saying. Because Madeline was taken up like five times during our nine months of pregnancy. It was like, and the, uh, there's a rose on the piano tonight, uh, be, or this morning, uh, because Madeline so-and-so was born, and during the whole nine months were like, seriously? Two weeks later. And there's another rose on the piano this morning because Madeline, uh, uh, you know, whatever, was born. It's like, Madeline? Okay. Well, I guess we're not naming our kid Madeline, so we're going with Evelyn. So that's how Evelyn was named. Annika, I searched far and wide for a name that meant grace. Okay? 
Her name doesn't mean grace in most languages. See, if you keep searching on Google, you're going to find what you want. So it's like, well, I like the name Annika, but I want a name that means grace. And so if I keep Googling, maybe this site, maybe I try this site. And fi finally, I found a site where Annika meant grace. So contrary to all the other sites you've seen about her name, I'm going with the one about grace, okay? So that's the story behind it. With Silas, I still to this day have no idea what his name means. Just like the name. It's biblical. Amen? That's, his, that's our kids' names. But in naming in the scriptures, that's not how naming works. Naming is about identity. Substance. Character. You are your name to some degree. Right? That's why name changes occur. Right? We see that often in the scriptures. When there's an encounter with Jesus, the name changes. Because this is now who you are, your name. Substance, character, no disconnect between name and identity. And so what we see here is an interesting thing. A child is born, a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's carrying the weight, he's taking the responsibility. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now that's a name. Why has he got that name? Because that's who he is. That's his identity. This is not just another child, not just another son. This son, this child, will be called Wonderful Counselor. This idea that it's just like, it's kind of mind-boggling. Right? That's what wonderful means. It's, we, that's beyond our comprehension. Right? We, we can't get our mind around it. It's too wonderful for me, Psalm 139. Right? I can't get it. I can't obtain to it. And so his counsel is wonderful, which I find to be interesting because you see the king, Ahaz, seeking counsel from other nations to protect himself instead of seeking the counsel of God, right? He's seeking the counsel of other nations. We see here that there's no need to seek any counsel other than the counsel of this baby, this child. That's who he is. He's wonderful counselor he'll rule that way mighty god this is like the hero the god hero right we we love heroes but all of our heroes whether superheroes or not that superheroes that we see on tv and say man that's really cool you know my hero growing up was michael jordan for obvious reasons um you know nowadays not so good but nonetheless uh, we all have heroes people we aspire to people we think are awesome right that's that. That's what he's saying by mighty God. He is the God hero. Everyone celebrates him. Everyone looks to him. Everyone says, you're awesome. You're the man. He's hero. That's God. He's valiant. He's strong. He's great. That's this child. Everlasting father. The emphasis here is on everlasting. Which again, there are so many kings, right? And, and the king would be seen as the father that is the source of the nation. The one who watched over the nation. The one who kept the nation. But father after father would die. Come and go and die. And many of them, mostly all of them, what, were sinful. They rejected the Lord. They turned away from Him. And so this father, right? Sin is ultimately why these fathers have died in the first place. But not this ruler. Not this father. This father is an everlasting father. So uh, you see that um, you know, he's the creator and the source of this kingdom 
and this people. And that'll never change. It's everlasting. And finally, the Prince of Peace. You know, everybody talks about peace today, world peace. It's, you know, my kids go shopping and they always want shirts that got the peace symbol on it. And I'm like, really? I don't want to go there. Like, let's pick something else out. You know, that worldly crave for peace. You know, we look around and we recognize that things are not the way they're supposed to be, right? I think that's, at the end of the day, that's peace. Things are the way that they're supposed to be in the world, in our relationships. Yeah. That's the way it's supposed to be. But not in the world which we live. Things are messed up. Even death itself, every time you go to a funeral, we are confronted with the reality that this is messed up. We're not supposed to lose people like this. People aren't supposed to die. We're meant to live. Right? So I think death is the ultimate uh, revealer that things are not the way they're supposed to be in the world. And so we see that this ruler, this prince, will come and establish peace at every level forever. Right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. With Jesus, there's hope. Hope uh, in him. He has a matchless name. Do you see that? That's who this is. I mean, do we really need to kind of hide and pretend that we don't know who we're talking about here anymore? We're talking about Jesus. The birth of Jesus, Christmas, is about hope coming into the world. The, the child uh, know, uh, that has a matchless name is present with us. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And his name is a name above all names. Right? And we see in the first chapter of Matthew that his name is, uh, is Jesus for this very simple reason. It means God saves, the Lord saves, or Yahweh saves. Jesus is saving us. I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know what, where you are in relationship to God. I don't know what would describe your current reality, but please don't miss out on what Christmas is all about. Don't get lost in the flat screens and the temporal, material promises of this world. See that it's all about Jesus coming into the world to be our Savior, to be our King, to give us all that we crave, peace, joy, freedom, light, things that money can't buy. Not only is He uh, a, 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 a child that has a matchless name, but he is a king who has an endless reign. Right? Look what goes on, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. It's never going to end. Right? There, there's no eight year term. Right? There's no, there's no re election. There's no impeachment because he and his ruler and his ruling will be one of righteousness and justice. Tell me that's not a worldly crave today. We look at things and we say, that's not right. Back to that peace thing. And we look at things and we say to ourselves, that's not fair. Somebody needs to do something about that. My wife talks a lot. She's a, she's a teacher up at Oswego State. She talks a lot about the, the social justice crowd. There's, so, there's a whole department now devoted to social justice. you got math, English, science, and social justice. Right? It's, it's big today. It's a big deal. 
Appropriately so, considering all the things in the world that have gone wrong. But I love this. I love this because it shows us that when Jesus comes into the world, He is the very thing that we long for. In His rule, He will put everything that is wrong right. And He will do everything that's not fair and make it just. That's the kind of ruler this world needs. And because He is that, and will never depart from being that, He will always reign as that. That's hope. That's hope for a world that longs for things to be right, people to be right, and things to be just. All the people that are unjust to be punished for it. You know, so often, we, we get frustrated about this idea of justice when it applies to us, but man, we love this idea of justice in the world because we see so many things that are wrong, and that person should pay for what they're doing to that person. That's the beauty of what Jesus does. He brings justice. He brings um, righteousness uh, to His rule. And it's from this time forth and forevermore. That's Jesus. With Jesus, there is hope. Because He has a matchless name, which reveals a matchless identity. There's no one like Him. With Jesus, there's hope. Because He has an eternal reign. Righteousness and justice. The very things that we crave, He brings. Again, everything is hanging on Him. So Christmas is all about that. His reign starts in righteousness and justice. His reign continues in righteousness and justice. This hope that we have is found in a child that has a matchless name and found in a king that has an endless reign. That's what Christmas is all about. Have I said that enough? Somehow I get the feeling I'm going to walk out of here and forget all about that. That my spending habits in the next 10 days are going to be different than what that is all about. I pray that's not so for me. I pray that's not so for you. That we be satisfied and celebrative about what Christmas is all about is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The last statement there is this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, you look at the situation, you see a people living in the consequences of their own sin. They belong there. And now you see a God entering in and intervening and sending His own Son into the world to save us from our sin and the consequences thereof. You begin to ask the question, why would He do this? Why would God do this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word zeal, inside of it, has, has jealousy. So, well, that's bad. Not divine jealousy. That's that he's consumed with his bride. Right? It's likened to a, a, a husband that looks at his wife and sees her wayward affection for another man and says, that will not be tolerated. I love her too much. I will pursue her. I will go after her and I will bring her back into my care. That's the kind of love and devotion that God has for His people. Even in the midst of their sin, He is pursuing us. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His power, His grace, His all-consuming love and devotion, which is based, again, upon His promises that He has made, He is not going to let us die forever in our sin. He's going to save us. The coming of Jesus, the celebration of that child being born into the world, is a fulfillment of that. His covenantal love, His devotion to His people, His refusal to let us die in our sins. The bringing of all the hopes and dreams of this nation, and ultimately we see of the world. And you say to yourself, how do we know that? Well, where did Jesus do ministry? Jesus showing up in Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee of the nations. When Jesus comes, does ministry. He is truly showing up as the son with a matchless name, the, the king with an endless reign. This is accomplished because of the devotion and the love and the affection that God has for his people. Again, I don't know what your image of God is, but that's the kind of God we worship, amen? Devoted to his people. Promises he's made are promises that he keeps. He's not left us to our sin and the punishment therein. He has come into this world as the one with a matchless name and an endless reign. I hope you see that tonight. I know it's been a longer than, well, it's always the same length sermon. But I hope and pray that as you contemplate Christmas, that you see Jesus for who He is. And that Maybe in your moment of despair and anguish, you can have uh, the hope of Jesus, the hope of the gospel, and see that Christmas is all about Him. It's all about Jesus. It's not about anything else. It's all about Jesus. Trust Him. Receive Him. Uh, he is a gift from God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You so much for Jesus. We confess that we get wrapped up in all the wrong things. We get consumed with temporal, material blessings in this world. We lose sight of all the eternal and personal gifts that are found in Jesus Christ. Please, God, give us a greater joy and satisfaction in Him. And may we bring this message to the world around us. It's all about Jesus. Nothing else will do. Our matchless King, who has an endless reign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.